And what happens next, my children, whether or not it be true, stands written in ancient songs, which you shall read for yourselves some day. And grand old songs they were, written in grand old rolling verse. And they call them the songs of Orpheus, or the Orphics, to this day. And they tell how the heroes came to Aphity across the bay, and waited for the southwest wind, and chose themselves a captain from their crew, and how all called for Hercules, because he was the strongest and most huge. But Hercules refused, and called for Jason instead, as he was the wisest of them all. So Jason was chosen captain, and Orpheus heaped a pile of wood and slew a bull, and offered it to Hera, and called all the heroes to stand round, each man's head crowned with olive, and asked for them to strike their swords into the bull. Then he filled a golden goblet with the bull's blood, and with wheaten flour, and honey, and wine, and the bitter salt sea water, and bade the heroes taste of it. So each tasted from the goblet, and passed it round, and vowed an awful vow. They vowed before the sun, and the night, and the blue-haired sea who shakes the land, to stand by Jason faithfully in the adventure of the Golden Fleece. And whosoever shrank back, or disobeyed, or turned traitor to his vow, then justice should minister against him, and the Aranese who track guilty men. Then Jason lighted the pile, and burnt the carcass of the bull, and they went to their ship and sailed eastward like men who have work to do. And the place from which they went was called Aphity, the sailing place from that day forth. More than 3,000 years ago they sailed away into the unknown eastern seas, and great nations have come and gone since then, and many a storm has swept the earth, and many a mighty armament to which Argo would be but one small boat. English and French, Turkish and Russian, all have sailed those waters since, yet the fame of that small Argo lives forever, and her name has become a proverb among men. So they sailed past the Isle of Scythos, with the Cape of Sepius on their left, and turned to the northward, up toward Pelion, up the long Magnesian shore, on their right hand was the open sea, and on their left old Pelion rose, while the clouds crawled round his dark pine forests and his caps of summer snow. And their hearts yearned for that dear old mountain as they thought of pleasant days gone by, and of the sports of their boyhood, and their hunting, and their schooling in the cave beneath the cliff. And at last Peleus spoke, let us land here, friends, and climb the dear old hill once more. For after all, we are going on a fearful journey, and who knows if we shall see Pelion again. Let us also go up to Chiron, our master, and ask his blessing before we start. And I have a boy, too, with him, whom he trains as he trained me once, the son whom Thetis brought me, the silver-footed lady of the sea, whom I caught in a cave and tamed, though she changed her shape seven times, for she changed as I held her into water and into vapor and into burning flame and into rock and then into a black-maned lion and finally into a tall and stately tree. But I held her and held her ever, 
till she took her own shape once more. And I led her to my father's house, and won her for my bride. And all the rulers of Olympus came to our wedding, and the heavens and the earth rejoiced together when an immortal wedded a mortal man. And now let me see my son, for it is not often that I shall see him upon this earth. Famous he will be, but short-lived, and die in the flower of youth. So Typhus, the helmsman, steered them to the shore under the crags of Pelion, and they went up through the dark pine forest towards the centaur's cave. And they came into the misty hall beneath the snow-crowned crag, and saw the great centaur lying with his huge limbs spread upon the rock, and beside him stood Achilles, the child whom no steel could wound, and played upon his harp right sweetly, while Chiron watched and smiled. Then Chiron leapt up and welcomed them, and kissed them every one, and set a feast before them of swine's flesh and venison and good wine, and young Achilles served them, and carried the golden goblet round. And after supper, all the heroes clapped their hands and called on Orpheus to sing, but he refused and said, How can I, who am the younger, sing before our ancient host? So they called on Chiron to sing instead, and Achilles brought him his harp, and he began a wondrous song, a famous story of old time, and of the fight between the centaurs and the lapithy, which you may still see carved in stone. He sang how his brothers came to ruin by their folly, when they were mad with wine, and how they and the heroes fought with fists and teeth and the goblets from which they drank, and how they tore up the pine trees in their fury and hurled great crags of stone, while the mountains thundered with the battle, and the land was wasted far and wide, until the Lapithy drove them from their home in the rich Thessalian plains to the lonely glens of Pindus, leaving Chiron all alone. And the heroes praised his song right heartily, for some of them had helped in that great fight. Then Orpheus took the lyre, and sang of chaos and the making of the wondrous world, and how all things sprang from love, who could not live alone in the abyss. And as he sang, his voice rose from the cave above the crags, and through the treetops and the glens of oak and pine. And the trees bowed their heads when they heard it, and the gray rocks cracked and rang, and the forest beasts crept near to listen, and the birds forsook their nests and hovered round, and old Chiron clapped his hands together and beat his hooves upon the ground for wonder at that magic song. Then Peleus kissed his boy and wept over him, and they went down to the ship, and Chiron came down with them, weeping, and kissed them one by one, and blessed them, and promised them great renown. And the heroes wept when they left him, till their great hearts could weep no more, for he was kind and just and pious and wiser than all beasts and men. Then he went up to a cliff and prayed for them that they might come home safe and well, while the heroes rode away and watched him standing on his cliff above the sea with his great hands raised toward the heaven and his white locks waving in the wind. And they strained their eyes to watch him to the last, for they felt that they should look upon him no more.
So they rode on over the long swell of sea, past Olympus, the seat of the immortals, and past the wooded bays of Athos and Samothrace, the sacred isle. And they came past Lemnos and the Hellspont, and through the narrow strait of Abydos, and so into the Propontis, which we call Marmora now. And there they met with Sisychus, ruling in Asia over the Dolions, who, the songs say, was the son of Aeneas, of whom you will hear many a tale some day. For Homer tells us how he fought at Troy, and Virgil how he sailed away and founded Rome. And men believed until late years that from him sprang our old British kings. Now Sisychus, the songs say, welcomed the heroes, for his father had been one of Chiron's scholars. So he welcomed them and feasted them and stored their ship with corn and wine and cloaks and rugs and, the songs say, with shirts, of which they no doubt stood in great need. But at night, while they lay sleeping, came down upon them terrible men who lived with the bears in the mountains, like titans or giants in shape, for each of them had six arms, and they fought with young firs and pines. But Heracles killed them all before morning with his deadly poisoned arrows. But among them, in the darkness, he accidentally slew Sisychus, the kindly prince. They then got to their ships and to their oars, and Typhus bade them cast off the hawsers and go to sea. But as he spoke, a whirlwind came and spun the Argo round and twisted the hawsers together so that no man could loose them. Then Typhus dropped the rudder from his hand and cried, This comes from the gods above. But Jason went forward and asked counsel of the magic bow. Then the magic bow spoke and answered, This is because you have slain Sisychus, your friend, and must appease his soul, or you will never leave this shore. So Jason went back sadly, and told the heroes what he had heard, and they leapt on shore and searched until dawn, and at dawn they found the body, all rolled in dust and blood, among the corpses of those monstrous beasts. And they wept over their kind host, and laid him on a fair bed, and heaped a huge mound over him, and offered black sheep at his tomb, and Orpheus sang a magic song to him, that his spirit might have rest. They then held games at the tomb, after the custom of those times, and Jason gave prizes to each winner. To Ancheos he gave the golden cup, for he wrestled best of all, and to Heracles a silver one, for he was the strongest and to Castor, who rode best, a golden crest, and Polydeuces the boxer had a rich carpet, and to Orpheus, for his song, a sandal with golden wings. But Jason himself was the best of all the archers, and the Manet crowned him with an olive crown, and so the songs say, the soul of good Sisychus was appeased, and the heroes continued on their journey in peace. And then the songs say that they rode away along the Mycenaean shores and past the mouth of Rindacus till they found a pleasant bay sheltered by the ridges of Arganthus and by high walls of basalt rock. And there they ran the ship ashore upon the yellow sand and furled the sail 
and took the mast down and latched it to its crutch. And next they let down the ladder and went ashore to sport and rest. And there Heracles went away and into the woods, bow in hand, to hunt wild deer. And Hylas, the fair boy, slipped away with him and followed him by stealth until he lost himself among the glens and sat down, weary, to rest himself by the side of a lake. And there the water nymphs came up to look at him, and they loved him, and carried him down under the lake to be their playfellow, forever happy and young. And Heracles sought for him in vain, shouting his name till all the mountains rang, but Hylas never heard him, far down under the sparkling lake. So while Heracles wandered searching for him, a fair breeze sprang up, and Heracles was nowhere to be found, and so the Argo sailed away, and Hercules was left behind. Then the Manae came to a doleful land where Amicus the giant ruled, and cared nothing for the laws of Zeus, but challenged all strangers to box with him, and those whom he conquered he slew. Polydeuces the boxer struck him harder a blow than ever he had felt before, and slew him. And the Manae continued up to the Bosphorus, till they came to the city of Phineas, the fierce Bithynian king. For Zetes and Calais bade Jason land there, because they had work to do. And they went up from the shore toward the city, through forests white with snow. And Phineas came out to meet them with a lean and woeful face, and said, Welcome, gallant heroes, to the land of bitter blasts, a land of cold and misery, yet I will feast you the best that I can. And he led them in, and set meat before them. And before they could put their hands to their mouths, down came two fearful monsters, the like of whom man had never seen, for they had the faces and the hair of fair maidens, but the wings and claws of hawks. And they snatched the meat from off the table and flew shrieking out above the roofs. Then Phineas beat his breast and cried, These are the harpies, whose names are the whirlwind and the swift, the daughters of wonder and of the amber nymph, and they rob us night and day. They carried off the daughters of Pandarus, whom all the gods had blessed, for Aphrodite fed them on Olympus with honey and milk and wine, and Hera gave them beauty and wisdom, and Athena skill in all the arts. But when they came to their wedding, the harpies snatched them both away and gave them to be slaves to the Uranese and live in horror all their days. And now they haunt me and my people and the Bosphorus with fearful storms and sweep away our food from off our tables, so that we starve in spite of all our wealth. Then up rose Zetes and Calais, the winged sons of the north wind, and said, Do you not know us, Phineas, and these wings which grow upon our backs? And Phineas hid his face in terror, but he answered not a word. Because you have been a traitor, Phineas, the harpies haunt you day and night, where is Cleopatra, our sister, your wife, whom you keep in prison? And where are her two children whom you blinded in your rage at the bidding of an evil woman and cast them out upon the rocks? Swear to us you will right our sister and cast out that wicked woman, and then we will free you from your plague and drive the whirlwind maidens from the south. 
But if not, we will put out your eyes, as you put out the eyes of your own sons. Then Phineas swore an oath to them, and drove out the wicked woman. And Jason took those two poor children, and cured their eyes with magic herbs. But Zetes and Calais rose up sadly and said, Farewell now, heroes all, farewell our dear companions, with whom we played on Pelion in old times, for a fate is laid upon us, and our day has come at last, in which we must hunt the whirlwinds over land and sea forever, and if we catch them, they die, and if not, we die ourselves. At that all the heroes wept, but the two young men sprang up and aloft into the air after the harpies, and the battle of the winds began. The heroes trembled in silence as they heard the shrieking of the blasts, while the palace rocked and all the city and great stones were torn from the crags, and the forest pines were hurled earthward, north and south and east and west, and the Bosphorus boiled white with foam, and the clouds were dashed against the cliffs. But at last the battle ended, and the harpies fled screaming toward the south, and the sons of the north wind rushed after them, and brought clear sunshine where they passed. For many a league they followed them, over the isles of the Cyclades, and away to the southwest across Hellas, till they came to the Ionian Sea, and there they fell upon the Echinades at the mouth of the Echolos. And those isles were called the Whirlwind Isles for many a hundred years. But what became of Zetes and Calais I know not, for the heroes never saw them again, and some say that Heracles met them, and quarreled with them and slew them with his arrows, and some say that they fell down from weariness and the heat of the summer sun, and that the sun god buried them among the Cyclades in the pleasant isle of Tenos, and for many hundreds of years their grave was shown there, and over it a pillar which turned to every wind. But those dark storms and whirlwinds haunt the Bosphorus to this day. But the Argonauts went eastward, out into the open sea, which we now call the Black Sea, but it was called the Euxine then. No Helen had ever crossed it, and all feared that dreadful sea, and its rocks, and shoals, and fogs, and bitter freezing storms. And they told strange stories of it, some false and some half true, how it stretched northward toward the ends of the earth, and the sluggish putrid sea, and the everlasting night, and the regions of the dead. So the heroes trembled for all their courage, as they came into that wild black sea and saw it stretching out before them without a shore as far as the eye could see. And first Orpheus spoke and warned them, We shall come now to the wandering blue rocks. My mother warned me of them, Calliope, the immortal muse. And soon they saw the blue rocks shining like spires and castles of gray glass, while an ice-cold wind blew from them and chilled all the heroes' hearts. And as they neared, they could see them heaving as they rolled upon the long sea waves, crashing and grinding together till the roar went up to heaven. The sea sprang up in spouts between them and swept round them in white sheets of foam, but their heads swung nodding high in air while the wind whistled shrill among the crags. The heroes' hearts sank within them and they lay upon their oars in fear. But Orpheus called to Typhus, the helmsman, 
Between them we must pass, so look ahead for an opening, and be brave, for Hera is with us. But Typhus the cunning helmsman stood silent, clenching his teeth, till he saw a heron come flying mast high towards the rocks, and hover a while before them, as if looking for a passage through. Then he cried, Hera has sent us a pilot, let us follow this cunning bird. Then the heron flapped to and fro a moment, till he saw a hidden gap, and into it he rushed like an arrow, while the heroes watched what would befall. And the blue rocks clashed together as the bird fled swiftly through, but they struck but a feather from his tail, and then rebounded apart at the shock. Then Typhus cheered the heroes, and they shouted, and the oars bent like withes beneath their strokes as they rush between those toppling ice crags and the cold blue lips of death. And before the rocks could meet again, they had passed through and were safe out in the open sea. And after that they sailed on wearily along the Asian coast by the Black Cape and Thanaeus, where the hot stream of Thimbris falls into the sea, and Sangarius, whose waters float on the Euxine, till they came to Wolf the river and to Wolf the kindly king. And there died two brave heroes, Idmon and Typhus the wise helmsman. One died of an evil sickness, and one a wild boar slew. So the heroes heaped a mound above them, and set upon it an oar on high, and left them there to sleep together on the far-off Lycaean shore. But Idas killed the boar, and avenged Typhus, and Ancheos took the rudder and was helmsman and steered them on toward the east. And they went on past Sinope, and many a mighty river's mouth, and past many a barbarous tribe, and the cities of the Amazons, the warlike women of the east, till all night they heard the clank of anvils, and the roar of furnace blasts, and the forge fires shone like sparks through the darkness of the mountain glens aloft. For they were come to the shores of Calibes, the smiths who never tire, but serve Ares, the cruel war god, forging weapons day and night. And at day dawn they looked eastward, and midway between the sea and sky they saw white snow peaks hanging, glittering sharp and bright above the clouds. And they knew they had come to Caucasus at the end of the earth, Caucasus the highest of all mountains, the father of the rivers of the east, on his peak lies chained the titan, while a vulture tears his heart, and at his feet are piled dark forests round the magic Colchaean land. And they rode three days to the eastward, while Caucasus rose higher hour by hour, till they saw the dark stream of Phasis rushing headlong into the sea, and, shining above the treetops, the golden roofs of King Aetes, the child of the sun. Then outspoke Ancheos the helmsman, We are come to our goal at last, for there are the roofs of Aetes, and the woods where all poisons grow. But who can tell us where among them is hidden the golden fleece? Many a toil must we bear before we find it, and bring it home to Greece. And Jason cheered the heroes, for his heart was high and bold. And he said, I will go up alone to Aetes, though he be the child of the sun, and win him with soft words. Better so than to go altogether, and to come to blows at once. But the Manet would not stay behind, 
So they rode boldly up the stream. And a dream came to Aetes and filled his heart with fear. And he thought he saw a shining star which fell into his daughter's lap, and that Medea, his daughter, took it gladly and carried it to the riverside and cast it in. And there the whirling river bore it down and out into the Euxine Sea. Then he leapt up in fear and bade his servants bring his chariot that he might go down to the riverside and appease the nymphs and the heroes whose spirits haunt the bank. So he went down in his golden chariot and his daughters by his side, Medea, the fair witch maiden, and Calciope, who had been Phrixus's wife, and behind him a crowd of servants and soldiers, for he was a rich and mighty prince. And as he drove down by the greedy river, he saw Argo sliding up beneath the bank, and many a hero within her, like immortals for beauty and for strength, as their weapons glittered round them in the level morning sunlight through the white mist of the stream. But Jason was the noblest of all, for Hera, who loved him, gave him beauty and tallness and terrible manhood. And when they came near together and looked into each other's eyes, the heroes were awed before Aetes as he shone in his chariot, like his father, the glorious sun. For his robes were of rich gold tissue, and the rays of his diadem flashed fire, and in his hand he bore a jeweled scepter, which glittered like the stars, and sternly he looked at them under his brows, and sternly he spoke aloud, Who are you, and what want you here that you come to my shores? Do you take no account of my rule, nor of my people, the Colchians who serve me, who never tired yet in the battle, and know well how to face an invader? And the heroes sat silent a while before the face of that ancient king, but Hera, the awful goddess, put courage into Jason's heart, and he rose and shouted loudly in answer, We are no pirates nor lawless men. We come not to plunder and to ravage or carry away slaves from your land. But my uncle, the son of Poseidon, Peleus, the Menaean king, he it is who has sent me on a quest to bring home the golden fleece. And these, too, my bold comrades, they are no nameless men, for some are the sons of immortals, and some of heroes far renowned. And we too never tire in battle, and know well how to give blows and to take, yet we wish to be guests at your table. It will be better so for both. Then the rage of Aetes rushed up like a whirlwind, and his eyes flashed fire as he heard. But he crushed his anger down within his breast, and spoke a mild and cunning speech. If you will fight for the fleece with my Colchaeans, then many a man must die. But do you indeed expect to win from me the fleece in fight? So few are you and your band that if you be worsted, I can load your ship with your corpses. But if you will be ruled by me, you will find it better by far to choose the best man among you, and let him fulfill the labors which I demand. Then I will give him the golden fleece, for a prize and a glory to you all. So saying, he turned his horses and drove back in silence to the town, and the Manet sat silent with sorrow, and longed for Heracles and his strength, for there was no facing the thousands of Colchaeans and the fearful chance of war. But Calciope, Phrixus's widow, went weeping to the town, 
for she remembered her Menaean husband and all the pleasures of her youth, while she watched the fair faces of his kinsmen and their long locks of golden hair. And she whispered to Medea, her sister, Why should all these brave men die? Why does not my father give them up the fleece, that my husband's spirit may have rest? And Medea's heart pitied the heroes, and Jason most of all. And she answered, Our father is stern and terrible, and who can win the golden fleece? But Calciope said, These men are not like our men. There is nothing which they cannot dare nor do. And Medea thought of Jason and his brave countenance, and said, If there was one among them who knew no fear, I could show him how to win that fleece. So in the dusk of evening they went down to the riverside, Calciope and Medea, the witch-maiden, and Argus, Phrixus's son, and Argus the boy crept forward among the beds of reeds, till he came to where the heroes were sleeping on the thwarts of the ship beneath the bank, while Jason kept ward on the shore, and leant upon his lance full of thought. And the boy came to Jason and said, I am the son of Phrixus, your cousin, and Calciope, my mother, waits for you to talk about the golden fleece. Then Jason went boldly with the boy, and found the two princesses standing. And when Calciope saw him, she wept, and took his hands and cried, O cousin of my beloved, go home before you die. It would be base to go home now, fair princess, and to have sailed all these seas in vain. Then both princesses besought him, but Jason said, It is too late. But you know not, said Medea, what he must do who would win the fleece. He must tame the two brazen-footed bulls who breathe devouring flame. He must plow before the nightfall four acres in the fields of Ares, and he must sow them with serpents' teeth, of which each tooth springs up into an armed man. Then he must fight with all those warriors, and little will it profit him to conquer them, for the fleece is guarded by a serpent, more huge than any mountain pine, and over his body you must step if you would reach the golden fleece. Then Jason laughed bitterly. <laughs> Unjustly that fleece is kept here, and by an unjust and lawless king. And unjustly shall I die in my youth, for I will attempt it before another sun be set. Then Medea trembled and said, No mortal man can reach that fleece unless I guide him through. For round it, beyond the river, is a wall full nine ells high, with lofty towers and buttresses, and mighty gates of threefold brass, and over the gates the wall is arched with golden battlements above, and over the gateway sits Brimo, the wild witch huntress of the woods, brandishing a pine torch in her hands, while her mad hounds howl around. No man dare meet her or look upon her, but only I, her priestess, and she watches far and wide, lest any stranger should come near. No wall so high but may be climbed at last, and no wood so thick it may be crawled through. No serpent so wary but he may be charmed, or witch queen so fierce but spells may soothe her, and I may yet win the golden fleece, if a wise maiden help bold men. And he looked at Medea cunningly, and held her with his glittering eye, till she blushed and trembled and said, Who can face the fire of bull's breath, 
and fight ten thousand armed men. He whom you help, said Jason, flattering her, for your fame is spread all over the earth. Are you not the queen of all enchantresses, wiser even than your sister Circe, in her fairy island in the west? Would that I were with my sister Circe's in her fairy island in the west, far away from sore temptation and thoughts which tear the heart. But if it must be so, for why should you die? I have an ointment here. I made it from the magic ice flower which sprang from Prometheus's wound above the clouds on Caucasus, in the dreary fields of snow. Anoint yourself with this, and you shall have in you seven men's strength, and anoint your shield with it, and neither fire nor sword can harm you. But what you begin you must end before sunset, for its virtue lasts only one day. And anoint your helmet with it before you sow the serpent's teeth. And when the sons of earth spring up, cast your helmet among their ranks, and the deadly crop of the war god's field will mow itself and perish. Then Jason fell on his knees before her and thanked her and kissed her hands, and she gave him the vase of ointment and fled trembling among the reeds. And Jason told his comrades what had happened and showed them the box of ointment, and all rejoiced but Idas, and he grew mad with envy. And at sunrise Jason went and bathed and anointed himself from head to foot, and his shield and his helmet and his weapons, and bade his comrades try the spell. So they tried to bend his lance, but it stood like an iron bar, and Idas in spite hewed at it with his sword, but the blade flew into splinters in his face. Then they hurled their lances at his shield, but the spear points turned like lead, and Caneus tried to throw him, but he never stirred a foot, and Polydeuces struck him with his fist, a blow which would have killed an ox, but Jason only smiled, and the heroes danced about him with delight, and he leapt and ran and shouted in the joy of that enormous strength, till the sun rose and it was time to go to claim Aetes' promise. So he sent up Telamon and Athelides to tell Aetes that he was ready for the fight, and they went up among the marble walls and beneath the roofs of gold and stood in Aetes' hall while he grew pale with rage. Fulfill your promise to us, child of the blazing sun. Give us the serpent's teeth, and let loose the fiery bowls, for we have found a champion among us who can win the golden fleece. And Aetes bit his lip, for he fancied that they had fled away by night, but he could not go back from his promise now. So he gave them the serpent's teeth. Then he called for his chariot and his horses, and sent heralds through all the town, and all the people went out with him to the dreadful war god's field, and there Aetes sat upon his throne, with his warriors on each hand, thousands and tens of thousands clothed from head to foot in steel chainmail, and the people and the women crowded to every window and bank and wall, while the Mene stood together, a mere handful in the midst of that great host. And Calciope was there, and Argus, trembling, and Medea wrapped closely in her veil, but Aetes did not know that she was muttering cunning spells between her lips. Then Jason cried, Fulfill your promise and let loose the fiery bowls. Then Aetes bade open the gates, and the magic bowls leapt out. Their brazen hooves rang upon the ground, 
and their nostrils sent out sheets of flame as they rushed with lowered heads upon Jason. But he never flinched a step. The flame of their breath swept round him, but it singed not a hair of his head, and the bulls stopped short and trembled when Medea began her spell. Then Jason sprang upon the nearest and seized him by the horn, and up and down they wrestled till the bull fell groveling to his knees. For the heart of the brute had died within him, and his mighty limbs were loosed beneath the steadfast eye of that dark witch maiden and the magic whisper of her lips. So both the bulls were tamed and yoked, and Jason bound them to the plow and goaded them onward with his lance till they had plowed the sacred field of Ares. And all the Manes shouted, but Aetes bit his lips with rage, for half of Jason's work was over, and the sun was yet high in heaven. Then he took the serpent's teeth and sowed them in the field, and waited what would befall. But Medea looked at him and at his helmet, lest he should forget the lesson she had taught. And every furrow heaved and bubbled, and out of every clod rose a man. Out of the earth they rose by thousands, each clad from head to foot in steel, and drew their swords and rushed on Jason, where he stood in the midst alone. Then the Manet grew pale in fear for him, but Aetes laughed a bitter laugh. See, if I had not warriors enough already around me, I could call them out of the bosom of the earth itself. But Jason snatched off his helmet and hurled it into the thickest of the throng, and blind madness came upon them, suspicion, hate, and fear, and one cried to his fellow, Thou didst strike me, and another, Thou art Jason, and thou shalt die. So fury seized those earth-born phantoms, and each turned his hand against the rest, and they fought and were never weary, till they all lay dead upon the ground. Then the magic furrows opened, and the kind earth took them home into her breast, and the grass grew up all green again above them, and Jason's work was done. Then the Manet rose and shouted till Prometheus heard them from his crag, and Jason cried, Lead me to the golden fleece this moment, before the sun goes down. But Aetes thought, He has conquered the bulls, and sown and reaped the deadly crop. Who is this who is proof against all magic? He may kill the serpent yet. So he delayed and sat taking counsel with his princes, till the sun went down and all was dark. Then he bade the herald cry, Every man to his home for the night. Tomorrow we will meet these heroes and speak more of the golden fleece. Then he turned and looked at Medea. This is your doing, false witch maid. You have helped these yellow-haired strangers and brought shame upon your father and yourself. Medea shrank and trembled, and her face grew pale with fear, and Aetes knew that she was guilty, and whispered, If they win the fleece, you die. But the Manet marched toward their ship, growling like lions cheated of their prey, for they saw that Aetes meant to mock them and to cheat them out of all their toil. And Oileus said, Let us go to the grove together and take the fleece by force. And Idas the rash cried, let us draw lots to see who shall go first, for while the dragon is devouring one, the rest can slay him and carry off the fleece in peace. But Jason held them back, though he praised them for their courage, for he hoped for Medea's help still. And after a while Medea came trembling and wept a long while before she spoke, 
but at last, my end has come, and I must die, for my father has found out that I have helped you. You he would kill if he dared, but he will not harm you, because you have been his guests. Go then, go, and remember poor Medea when you were far away across the sea. But all the heroes cried, If you die, we die with you, for without you we cannot win the fleece, and home we will not go without it, but fall here, fighting, to the last man. You need not die, said Jason. Flee home with us across the sea, but show us first how to win the fleece, for you can do it. Why else are you the priestess of the grove? Show us but how to win the fleece, and then come with us, and you shall be my queen, and rule over the rich princes of the Manae in Iolcus by the sea. And all the heroes pressed around and vowed to her that she would be their queen. Medea wept and shuddered, and hid her face within her hands, for her heart yearned after her sisters and her playfellows, and the home where she was brought up as a child. But at last she looked up at Jason, and spoke between her sobs. Must I leave my home and my people, to wander with strangers across the sea? The lot is cast, and I must endure it. I will show you how to win the golden fleece. Bring up your ship to the woodside, and moor her there against the bank, and let Jason come up at midnight, and one brave comrade with him, and meet me beneath the wall. Then all the heroes cried together, I will go, and I, and I. And Idas the rash grew mad with envy, for he longed to be the foremost in all things. But Medea calmed them and said, Orpheus shall go with Jason, and bring his magic harp, for I hear of him that he is the king of all minstrels, and can charm all things on earth. And Orpheus laughed for joy and clapped his hands because the choice had fallen on him. For in those days poets and singers were as bold and brave as the best of warriors. So at midnight they went up the bank and found Medea, and beside came Absyrtus, her young brother, leading a yearling lamb. Then Medea brought them to a thicket beside the war god's gate, and there she bade Jason dig a ditch and kill the lamb and leave it there and strew on it magic herbs and honey from the honeycomb. Then sprang up through the earth, with the red fire flashing before her, Brimo, the wild witch huntress, while her mad hounds howled around. She had one head like a horse's, and another like a ravening hound's, and another like a hissing snake's, and a sword in either hand. And she leapt into the ditch with her hounds, and they ate and drank their fill, while Jason and Orpheus trembled, and Medea hid her eyes. And at last the witch queen vanished, and fled with her hounds into the woods, and the bars of the gates fell down, and the brazen doors flew wide, and Medea and the heroes ran forward and hurried through the poison wood among the dark stems of the mighty beeches, guided by the gleam of the golden fleece, until they saw it hanging on one vast tree in the midst, and Jason would have sprung to seize it, but Medea held him back, and pointed shuddering to the tree foot, where the mighty serpent lay, coiled, in and out among the roots, with a body like a mountain pine. His coils stretched many a fathom, spangled with bronze and gold, and half of him they could clearly see, but no more, for the rest of him lay in darkness far beyond. 
And when he saw them coming, he lifted up his head and watched them with his small bright eyes and flashed his forked tongue and roared like a fire among the woodlands till the forest tossed and groaned. For his cries shook the trees from leaf to root and swept over the long reaches of the river and over Aeti's hall and woke the sleepers in the city till mothers clasped their children in fear. But Medea called gently to him, and he stretched out his long, spotted neck, and licked her hand, and looked up into her face as if to ask for food. Then she made a sign to Orpheus, and he began his magic song. And as he sung, the forest grew calm again, and the leaves on every tree hung still, and the serpent's head sank down, and his brazen coils grew limp, and his glittering eyes closed lazily, till he breathed as gently as a child, while Orpheus called to pleasant slumber, who gives peace to men and beasts and waves. Then Jason leapt forward warily and stepped across that mighty snake and tore the fleece from off the tree trunk, and the four rushed down the garden to the bank where the Argo lay. There was a silence for a moment, while Jason held that golden fleece on high. Then he cried, Go now, good Argo, swift and steady, if ever you would see Pelion more. And she went, as the heroes drove her, grim and silent all, with muffled oars, till the pine wood bent like willow in their hands, and the stout Argo groaned beneath their strokes. On and on beneath the dewy darkness they fled swiftly down the swirling stream, underneath black walls and temples and the castles of the princes of the east, past sleuthmas and fragrant gardens and groves of all strange fruits, past marshes where fat kine lay sleeping and long beds of whispering reeds, till they heard the merry music of the surge upon the bar as it tumbled in the moonlight all alone. Into the surge they rushed, and Argo leapt the breakers like a horse, for she knew the time was come to show her mettle and win honor for the heroes and herself. Into the surge they rushed, and Argo leapt the breakers like a horse, till the heroes stopped all panting, each man upon his oar, as she slid into the still broad sea. Then Orpheus took out his harp and sang a song, till the heroes' hearts rose high again, and they rode on stoutly and steadfastly away into the darkness of the west.' 